Life in Sense with Joe Barrett and Odette Toilette. Marek Kukula is an astronomer. He studies the sky in order to understand how the universe works and is particularly concerned with communicating what he and others find to a wider audience. You can't smell things in space. It's too cold, too hot, too thin, too thick, too poisonous in ways that are difficult for us to even understand. But the universe is made of stuff, and largely the same stuff that make up the things we breathe through our noses every day. Astronauts returning from spacewalks have described the residue left on their suits and equipment as smelling of steak or sweet welding torches. We know moon dust smells faintly of gunpowder, and there are billowing clouds of pink gas millions of miles across that are made from the same chemicals that make raspberries smell like raspberries. It is certainly possible to think of space in these terms, and this is something we will attempt to do, along with talking to Marek about the smells that have stood out to him through his life, with his feet firmly on this planet. He began by telling us about his role working out of the observatory at Royal Museum's Greenwich. Public astronomer is a really cool job title, and I love it, but it is a little bit difficult to explain to people what it is that I do. I work at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich and our mission there is to try and bring the excitement and wonder uh, of astronomy to as many people as possible. So I get to do all sorts of things. I get to put together exhibitions, um, programmes of talks and events for the public. I get to bring in scientists who've made interesting discoveries and I get to go and talk about the latest discoveries in space to anyone who will listen, um, including journalists and broadcast media. So it's really varied, but it's just about getting that that message out that space is exciting and all the cool things that we're discovering. It's quite interesting to work in a field where that is completely absent of smell and sound. Or is it, or is it not, in the way that you work? Well, when you think about human senses, of course the conditions in space are so extreme um, that our senses probably, well, wouldn't work because you'd be dead, obviously. Um, but as I said, you can you can look at the different chemicals that are there um, and that kind of gives you an idea of, of, you know, you could imagine what they might smell like if you brought them into a more Earth-like environment. And even things like sound, I mean, you know, we all know from Alien that in space no one can hear you scream. There's no air in space for the sound waves to travel through. But there is material in space. There's dust and gas very thinly spread. Um, and you can, in some circumstances, get pressure waves which in a way are kind of sound waves and we can look at the sun and see how the sun vibrates and of course that's actually a form of sound so the sun is ringing like a bell um, and we can translate those signals back into a kind of sound that we can hear Um, so there are ways of translating phenomena in space back into things that we can smell or hear or touch uh, so that it, it's not entirely beyond our senses. But do you think that's a, do you think that's a useful way of understanding space? I would say that any way that makes it more accessible to our everyday senses is a useful way to enhance our understanding. Of course, it's not it's not a literal interpretation because the conditions there are so extreme. 
but by looking at the sun and understanding that it it is ringing with sound waves internally uh, that we can't hear, but we can see the surface vibrate and we can translate that back into sound. That is actually a very useful way of un- understanding it as an astronomical object. Maybe if we go to uh, a cloud of interstellar gas, so a cloud of gas between the stars, very, very thinly spread, um, so you wouldn't be able to breathe, um, the, the molecules would be too far apart for your nose to really even sense that um, there was anything there. But if you could gather enough together to get a a whiff. Um, I think you'd find it quite intriguing because actually we know that um, there are all sorts of complex molecules out there, organic molecules. So these are the kind of things um, that do actually in the laboratory have a, a quite interesting smells. And, and I think some of them are sort of the basis for kind of the chemistry of, of, of perfume. So things like benzene and, and all sorts of interesting organic molecules, which is why we think that these, these molecules are the precursors to life and it may well be because they're so common throughout the universe that life actually might be common if you take those chemicals and put them in a more pleasant, temperate environment, an Earth-like planet. Perhaps that's, that's the beginnings of life. This is maybe completely wrong, but is there the possibility of things, molecules or combinations of molecules that we have no concept of and don't understand that might smell like something which we could not comprehend? Well, I think... What scientists have discovered is that there is there is a very rich chemistry going on out there in the universe, even in what you think of being these very sort of cold, empty, barren environments. Um, space is full of tiny, tiny grains of, of dust, little mineral grains, and on the surface of those, the, the gases condensed form ices, and within the ice, all sorts of interesting chemistry and reactions go, go on and very, very slowly, but of course... You know, the universe has been around for billions of years, so plenty of time for interesting stuff to happen. So I'm sure there are chemicals, molecules out there that um, we don't find on Earth because the conditions are very different. Um, And perhaps if you could bring them to Earth or synthesise them on Earth, they might have very interesting, unusual smells. What was the smellscape of your childhood, Marek? I grew up in the country, first of all down in Essex and Hertfordshire and then we moved up to Yorkshire when I was about seven years old and so a lot of the smells, the evocative smells of my childhood are kind of country smells and garden smells, not all of them what you might think of as pleasant smells, I mean the smell of manure and silage, that's quite a strong one for me when they're muck spreading in the autumn, you know. But I guess a really powerful one, I, I was just, I, I was such a geeky child, I was so obsessed with nature, not just stars and, and planets, but plants and animals and, and uh, trees and rocks and things like that. And I remember spending hours with my little net trying to catch butterflies on the buddleia bush. So the smell of buddleia is a really evocative one, that really sort of rich, intense kind of floral smell. And of course now living in London, it, it grows everywhere out of cracks in walls and things. So I'm always getting a sort of a little whiff of it in the summer, which takes me right back to that little boy standing there with his butterfly net. It's a beautiful image of beating butterfly wings, wafting perfume yes, towards you. Yes, yes, they're sort of spreading, spreading the perfume towards you. Peacock butterflies, tortoise shells, that kind of thing, yeah. Interesting, you mentioned muck spreading in the autumn, because that gives, like living in the countryside, is an environment where you can almost sense time passing by changing smells. And that's something that, sat here in London, I don't think we can acknowledge quite so much. 
I think that's very, very true. Uh, when you live in the country, you're much more aware of, of seasonal cycles and the changes in nature. And that's something that um, everybody would have been very conscious of, you know, 200 years ago, even people in cities, because the cities were not so big. And, you know, they, they had animals, farm animals were kept in the city. Uh, so yes, I, I, I do whenever I go back to visit my, my parents or see friends in the country you're instantly dropped back into that world of being very aware of what time of year it is and all of those seasonal scents that you know the wet leaves in the autumn um, bring back really vivid intense memories for me I imagine your work involves a lot of moments of quiet concentration and something we ask people about is the smell of creativity or the smell of focus or something which when you're in that sort of quiet place of concentration and work? Yes. When, when you're doing astronomy, I mean, there are, there are sort of real kind of eureka moments, inspiration, and that's really great when you get that rush, when you solve a problem, when you discover something for the first time. But behind that, there's a, there's a lot of slogging. There's a lot of data analysis, of number crunching, of sitting in front of a computer, kind of processing your, your image and trying to get the information out of it that you need. And I spent a lot of time sitting in computer rooms at observatories in universities. And that kind of sense of really concentrating hard and really kind of forcing yourself to go through this tedious process of of analysing the data is always associated in my mind with that smell of computer room air conditioning, you know, where they're just really stripping the air out to try and remove the heat. And I can't even really find another analogy for, for what it smells like. But I think if you've ever been in one, you, you know it's that smell of kind of stripped air that's been through, cycled through over and over again. So not a particularly pleasant one, but that's certainly that's what I think of when I think of number crunching and doing all of the, the tedious behind-the-scenes work that um, eventually gives you an exciting result. And it comes with a very specific sort of a hot, carpety buzz and, and the, the ceaseless kind of whining drone of the fans. So, uh, yeah. I, I lived in the country until I was 18 when I went to university in Manchester. So, you know, it, it's, it was where I grew up. It's very much a part of me. I kind of feel quite torn now between being a city boy and, and a country boy, and I don't know that there's ever really a way to kind of reconcile those two things you just have to keep moving from one to another so I had the smells of the country and and those kind of seasonal cyclings um, right up until I was 18. Were you a very studious teenager and working all the time? Well I, I hate to disappoint you I was a terrible terrible swat as a teenager I really was I used to read a lot I used to like going for long walks so that's probably where, where my teenage moodiness kind of came out. Um, and I really didn't do the whole partying and, and you know, um, disgracing myself until I was in well into my 20s. And, you know, actually at, at the time trying to be quite a serious scientist during the day. And, um, and then I kind of discovered the joys of going out and drinking too much and doing all of the things that you probably should do when you're a little bit younger. But um, it's kind of fun to do it when you've got a bit more money and you know you've already passed your exams. I was studying physics at Manchester University and so most of my friends were also uh, physics students or people I knew, and this really is going to make me sound like such a nerd, people I knew from the University Science Fiction Association. 
you're not looking surprised, Odette. I'm slightly disappointed. They were all, of course, like massive kind of rock and heavy metal fans. And my kind of musical tastes were more classical and indie. And so I spent an awful lot of time hanging out in rock clubs where I was the only one drinking gin and tonics and everyone else was necking cider out of bottles and um, pouring pints down themselves. So um, what I remember is that kind of sweaty rock club smell, um, the smell of sort of slightly unclean leather jackets and, um, dare I say it, hair that perhaps hasn't been washed as frequently as it should be, and, and just sort of this sort of stale beer kind of smells of a of a nightclub that doesn't get its floor washed every day happy memories very happy memories i think probably accentuated by the rain it was manchester everything was damp so you perpetually had that kind of wet dog smell um and if anyone's listening from manchester i love manchester and i love going back so it's a very fond memory I never did manage to grow my hair long, though, so, you know, and still the smell of wet leather doesn't really do it for me. Have you got a a scent which you associate with London and moving to London? Yeah, actually, um, and it's, um, it's wet pavements. I work in Greenwich, which doesn't feel, sometimes doesn't feel like being in London, that's quite a nice thing about it. But um, the Royal Observatory is is part of Royal Museums Greenwich, which includes the National Maritime Museum. And so I have a lot of meetings in different buildings and I spend quite a lot of time walking between them. And it just always seems to start raining just as I leave the building without my jacket, without an umbrella. Uh, and so I associate sort of rushing between meetings with this kind of smell of, of rain on the pavement, which I quite like, actually. Well, it's certainly a very distinctive smell, isn't it? I think there is that sense of kind of, you know, the the freshness of of rain, which in a city, you know, with a lot of pollution, you know, that London thing where you blow your nose at the end of the day and your hanky's kind of black. Uh, And I always like to think when it rains, at least it's sort of washing that out of the air. So that's a kind of a nice side to it. Although usually by then I'm sort of splashing through puddles and cursing. Um, You work in a museum and spend a lot of time in museums. I mean, imagine a lot of the, the stuff that you, you, you actually work with is metal and glass related, but is there, a, is there a smell related to it and you get a sense of the history of the place that you work, which is a place rich in history? Yes, I mean, the Royal Observatory was founded in 1675 and, and the earliest buildings um, are by Christopher Wren. Um, and yet we have buildings, because it was a working scientific site, they kept adding over the over the centuries. And so we have all sorts of buildings from different periods right down into the 21st century so as you walk through the site there is a kind of I guess a sort of a a scent kind of tour of of the ages where you go from the the kind of the the waxed sort of wood smell of the very old 17th century buildings right through to the kind of the more kind of polished metal and um and upholstery kind of smell of the the planetarium which is only um from 2007 so that's a kind of a nice dimension to it i remember when i came in uh, in the planetarium i i don't know if it's the projector i think projectors have a really particular smell does it have a projector or am i imagining 
Yes, it does. It has two really powerful projectors. It costs quite a lot of money, I don't mind telling you. Um, but they're, they're very good and they, they have to um, project quite intense light sometimes to give the, the audience that sense of really sort of being immersed in the planetarium show. So they can generate quite a bit of heat. And, and I think it's that kind of hot sort of projector smell that, that you will have got. And that's very distinctive. And that and projected, I don't know if it, it smells as well like very new cinemas. Yes. And it, actually the seats that we have um, do come from a company that, that, that kits out cinemas. And it's, it's exactly the same experience that we want people to have. We want them to be comfortable so that they can just focus on, on the show. Uh, but they also have to be durable because we get literally hundreds of thousands of people come through the planetarium every year, um, including lots of school groups. And you can imagine, you know, the wear and tear on the upholstery there. And we're always finding sort of sweet wrappers under the seats and things. So, you know, it, it has to be able to stand up to some quite sort of heavy usage. Something I, I guess that is very evocative of my work as an astronomer, when you go to use the telescopes, they tend to be very far away from towns and cities to avoid light pollution and also very high up, so on the top of mountains, so that you're above most of the clouds and that means that you've got a much better chance of having a clear sky and being able to see the stars. And so you go to places like Hawaii, the Canary Islands, and even though they, you think of these as being very warm places, when you're two and a half, three kilometres above sea level, it's actually quite cold and quite a harsh climate. And, and what is very evocative for me is the, um, the, the plants that grow up there are very sort of um, hardy little shrubs, you know, with these tiny sort of waxy leaves and very kind of resinous wood when you brush past them, when you're sort of having a little break between getting your observations ready in the afternoon. And, and sometimes if you go up and they, they have sort of, they're just covered in tiny yellow flowers. So I suppose they're kind of related to things like gorse and broom that we would have here, but with that kind of very Mediterranean sort of resinous smell, because they do have to put up with really harsh climate. I mean, it can snow up there quite violently. And so actually something that makes me think of, of those observing trips, quite exciting being up there using the telescope, is that smell of those really hardy, resinous shrubs clinging to the tops of these mountains. Are the shrubs in Hawaii very particular, do you remember, as opposed to the ones in the Canary Islands? When you go to different observatories, yes, they, they are different, but I think it's maybe it's sort of convergent evolution where because they, they may have come from very different plant families but they're evolving to cope with a very similar environment, that they do all tend to look fairly similar and and I just remember sort of yellow flowers being being quite common I don't know why that would be but um maybe there's some evolutionary advantage to having yellow flowers at that altitude I don't know but certainly that that kind of waxy sort of little tiny waxy leaves and, and when you snap the twigs and you get that really resinous smell not always pleasant sometimes it can be quite acrid but some of them have a really pungent kind of perfumey smell as well in my job in Greenwich now I don't get to go to the um big telescopes abroad very often anymore but as a research astronomer, you would probably go two or three times a year, if that even, just for a few nights each time. So you don't actually spend much time using the telescopes. The rest of the time you spend analysing the data. The telescopes these days are so powerful um, that the images you get are so rich in information that you actually spend an awful lot of time trying to extract that information and make the most of it, rather than just being at the telescope. But of course, because they're so at such high altitude, you do suffer the effects of that so the oxygen is very thin you um while you're up there you do feel kind of tired and out of breath and it's often very difficult to think 
Um, one of the best pieces of advice I was given before my first ever observing trip was a, an older, wiser astronomer said, plan your observations before you go, because once you're up there, it's very difficult to think rationally and intelligently. And because the air is so thin and so dry, actually your sense of smell is, is quite impaired because you, your nose sort of dries up and you feel kind of almost like you have a, a cold at the back of your throat. It's quite dry too. So it's often quite a relief to come back down to sea level. Um, really extreme conditions, so quite exciting to be able to go. But um, after a week or so on the telescope, you really do relish being able to go back down to sea level and this sort of thick, rich, moist air that you've been missing. The observatories will have um, a staff of people who work there and they will tend to sort of rotate. They'll do a week up there and then a week down at the offices on sea level. But usually there'll be other astronomers who are using the telescopes. And I do kind of miss the camaraderie of going. You'll, you'll meet different people um, every time you go. Often there'll be a sort of a, a meal in the evening before everybody goes off to the different telescopes on, on the very top of the mountain for their night of observing. And everyone gets quite excited. And some observ observatories ban alcohol, but the ones in the Canary Islands, they didn't. So we'd always have a little bit of wine. And then, of course, if the weather doesn't play ball and it's cloudy, you're back down and, of course, off to the kitchen, where's the wine bottle? So there were some quite, quite interesting nights up at the observatory when it was cloudy, too cloudy to observe. It can be quite eerie up there. I mean, the night sky, when it's clear, is, is astonishing. I mean, crystal clear, so many stars. I have trouble recognising the constellations when I'm in a place like that because there are so many stars and the Milky Way looks incredible. But also, it is very isolated. Often it will be a two- or three-hour drive from the nearest sort of civilization, And you are... There are other people around, but when you step away from the observatory buildings, of course it's pitch black because external lights aren't, aren't allowed because they might disrupt the observations. Uh, and you do have that sense of being alone in a very vast, very empty world. And of course, with the vastness of the universe over your head. And often these observatories are built on the top of extinct, we hope, volcanoes. And so the landscape can be very kind of barren and jagged and really gives you this sense of... The, the great kind of titanic forces within the earth so it can be quite quite an overwhelming experience to be somewhere like that and with the oxygen depletion sort of altitude sickness those kind of things it can you know make you feel a little bit different from your normal kind of um, state of mind so interesting experience do you have anything like do you have a flask of tea or a Mars bar or like a teddy bear or like do you have something with you to because it must be quite I mean you're concentrating and you're working but it must be quite a lonely thing so do you have do you have things to make you feel less lonely I always take a lot of books when I go um, because there is a lot of downtime even when you're observing you you might set the telescope to point in a particular direction for an hour or two hours and then really all you're doing is kind of sitting and waiting for for, for the next you know, the next object to rise in the sky so that you can observe it. So you do a lot of reading, and I, I find that you something about being in that environment, you can go very intensely into the book that you're reading, and, you know, it becomes very, very vivid and very real. So you could be, you know, in 17th century Venice or uh, Sherlock Holmes kind of, you know, London, um, and forget all about your surroundings, which is quite odd considering, you know, where you are to be plunged into a, into a very different 
world. So reading is something that I, I do a lot to keep me to keep me sane when I'm in these places. All I can imagine now is you with your head in a book and all these shooting stars going past <laughs> over your head. I'm sure I have missed amazing sights because I've been looking down and not up. I, I lived for a long time in Edinburgh, um, which uh, is, is very, the university there is very strong on, on astronomy and astrophysics. Um, and of course, Edinburgh is far enough north that you do sometimes get to see the aurora, the northern lights, except so many times where I would read about it the next day in the newspaper. You know, people saw the northern lights shimmering sort of green over Edinburgh. And I was thinking, well, I was out, but I, you know, I was walking home from the pub and I was looking down at my feet and I never looked up, you know. So maybe, maybe I need to remember to look up more when I'm not working because I miss out on things. If you could, if you could attribute a, an imaginary smell to the Aurora Borealis. The Aurora has this really intense kind of green colour. It can have other colours, sort of reds and, and blues as well, but green is very common. Uh, and I think it would have a very strong kind of spearmint smell to it. It's exactly that colour. It looks like the green stripe in toothpaste. That was Marek Kukula's Life in Sense. As we've already mentioned, Marek works at London's only planetarium in Greenwich. Always lots going on. For up-to-date information, visit rmg.co.uk. The sounds of shooting stars, clouds of interstellar gas, planets rotating on their axes, throbbing suns, and other noises from space you have heard in this episode have been made possible by Jamie Russell and Jace Warner. This has been Life in Sense. See you next time. More lives told through smell can be found on iTunes. Search for Life in Sense or visit lifeinsense.com. <laughs>